The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. Good evening, everybody. This is Robin Nelson with another edition of Wrestle Podcast. And my guest tonight is the Russian nightmare, Nikita Koloff. How's it going, Nikita? Uh, hey, the shit don't work out. The news nobody has a comrade. Hey, hey, I have to put that up front because uh, so many people are like, can I just hear the Russian voice one time, you know? So so we'll get that out of the way right at the beginning. How's that sound? Yeah, it's pretty good, and it sounded pretty good as well. So when you did that Russian accent, um, did you like uh, make it up yourself, or did you do a little bit of studying on it, how to get it right? Uh, really kind of a combination. I mean, uh, you know, part of the storyline was, hey, you know, you're right, you're right off the boat, you know, speaking English at first, and I'm like, all right, that, that, that should be easy enough. And then what I ended up doing is I, I got a Russian workbook, I found a Russian workbook, I found a, in those days, cassette tape, uh, a Russian cassette tape, and so I just, you know, drive up and down the road, kind of listening to the cassette, and studying the Russian word, you know, putting a few words together, maybe a few a few phrases together, uh, uh, learn to sign my name in Russian, and and uh, and then eventually, you know, it came time to, you know, begin to, to start to, to, to do some interviews, start to talk, and I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, if I really was from there, how would... How would this word sound? How would that word sound? You know, with an accent in English, and that's just kind of how I just kind of pieced it together, if you will. So yeah, all, all on my own. Nobody asked me to do it. I just did it myself. Uh, that's pretty awesome as well, because I always wondered about that as well. Um, also, um, you were uh, wrestling in Kuwait. And you got in a little bit of trouble with the uh, Russian ambassador. Uh, he thought you were like really Russian, and he wanted you to stay at the Russian embassy. <laughs> well, well, when the word got back to uh, to the home office, uh, Crockett Promotions, they're like, "Hey, uh, so you know, we got could be a bit of a snag." We're like, well, "What's up?" And they're like, "Well, the, you know, the, the Russian ambassador, you know, if the, if the you know the Russian embassy in Kuwait." You know, seeing all this advertisement because you know we were doing a ten day tour. Yeah. Uh, the same 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 stadium every night, which uh, that was crazy. But ten nights in the same stadium, um, and and he sees all these posters and advertising. Of course, you know I used to you know, Ivan and I used to wear the CCCP headbands and have the hammer and sickle on our tights and stuff. And he's like, "Hey, who is this guy? I mean, if this guy's Russian." We want him staying at the embassy, and, he, and if he's not, you know, what's, you know, why is he being an imposter, you know, kind of thing? <laughs> and the promoter, you know, of course, he, you know, told him, he goes, no, he, that's just a character that's, you know, he's like, and he made the promoter, he goes, I want that CCCP. Yeah, I guess he was offended by it then, you know, and made him, made him black that out on all the posters and advertising. And then, lo and behold, did I know, First night, opening night, I'm in the dressing room, and 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 the promoters want to go. Hey, do they go? The ambassador and his wife are in the stand. So I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh my gosh. And the craziest part is, 
over here, I'm like, you know, the baddest of the baddest, you know, number number one most hated. I walk out that first night, and they and they, the Kuwaitis cheer me, and and I'm wrestling Sergeant Slaughter, and he walks out, and they boo him, and I, I'm like, Sarge, I don't have a clue. I, I'm, you know, I'm that guy. I've been healed my, my whole career so far. How, how do I do this? You know, kid, just follow my lead. And Sarge was great. I got my hand raised, and I guess the ambassador went home happy. Hey, that's pretty good as well. At least she didn't get in trouble and end up being behind the Iron Curtain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, see, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm like, dude, I ain't going to stand in no Russian embassy. I mean, they, they never see me again. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's awesome, too. Um, I did a lot of research on you as well. And you were, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to ask you as well. Um, you were one of the final three contestants in the running to play the Russian Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. Yeah, really, really probably the final, uh, probably two finalists. Uh, and I say that because it was Dolph Lundgren, myself, and, and Kerry Von Ehrer, uh Wow. Of, of all people. Uh, out on the set with Stallone, for, uh, out on the... Uh, uh, out in Hollywood for the fi- for the final screen test to make their final decisions, and I was pretty sure the odds increased when 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 Carrie has said to me, "Do you know your lines for this thing?" And I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm like, "Yeah, I've been studying for a month." I mean, dude, this is Rocky Four. Are you kidding me? And um, so. He didn't even know his line, so I thought, well, my, my odds just increased by 33%, you know? So, re- really, it came down to Lundgren, Dolph Lundgren, and myself. I, I got the short straw, did the readings first, and and funny part of that story, to me, looking back, I did two two takes by myself, and Stallone said on the third one, he goes, hey, he goes, let's stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, um, and he goes, uh, you know, halfway through your lines, finish your lines, but halfway through, let's do it nose to nose, stare down, like, you know, like if we were in the ring or something. And I'm like, all right. He goes, just, you know, but finish your lines. I'm like, I can do that. Now, a little side note. I walked into that, that, that studio, 285 pounds, you know, 8% body fat, he jacked up. Sylvester's, you know, five foot six, a hundred, a buck 60. Didn't you kind of get the picture there? Yeah. Um, so when we do this deal, it's important to understand that part of it because we do this deal. I, I, I turn half, I turn halfway through. We do our stare down. They all cut, and I'll never forget. He asked the director how it was, and you know if you've ever been at any of those Hollywood studio sets, you know, was, you know for screen, te- you know, screen testing, etc. You know, they got them lit certain ways. Well, the director said these words. I never forgot them. Well, it was really good until you turned towards each other. Then we lost you in his shadow. And I thought two things. not One, not good for his ego, and two, not good for my opportunity. And, of course, Dolph Lundgren ended up getting the part. Wow. That's an interesting story. I mean, because Dolph Lundgren is a pretty big guy as well. Well, he's tall, okay, but... Size wise, now, 
So Lundgren in the movie was about 205. Okay, I see what you're saying as well. Um, also, um, you had a great friendship with uh, Road Warrior Animal as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. And um, was he the one uh, to uh, got you to go talk to Crockett to become a professional wrestler? Yeah, so I recruited Animal. Um, uh, I was already in college. I was part of the recruiting team for the, for the new freshman class and read about him and his accolades in the newspaper at his high school and, and contacted him, invited him and his parents out to tour the campus. And uh, they came and had an instant, just an instant connection uh, with him and I. And, and his parents ended up, you know, ended up falling in love with his family, his parents, his mom, uh, Lorraine. I mean, she just, she just, she loved me. And uh, it, it essentially adopted me in as, as one of the boys. And she had three and one more. She said, you'll be my prodigal son. And, and um, and so, you know, we became the best of friends, played some college football together, and then he eventually left college, went off into wrestling. I finished out my college career training for a pro football tryout when when the call came one morning uh, from him, and he shared the storyline with me uh, about what they were looking for in Charlotte. I made the phone call to Jim Crockett, and, and the rest was history. Yeah, um, when you finally, you know, uh, met Jim Crockett as well, um, what was your first impression of um, Ivan Kol- Koloff? Well, um, I mean, it was kind of a, really a crash course. I mean, I, I walked into to Jim Crockett's office the day he said to be there, introduced myself. We had had a five-minute conversation a couple months earlier. That was it between the time we talked on the phone and the time I showed up at his office the day he said to be there. And he took a look at me. It was kind of funny. He goes, take your shirt off. I'm like, okay. It's kind of weird, but okay. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I just want to see my physique. And he goes, wait here. He walked out, walked back in. He goes, uh, Don Canoto, Ivan Koloff, meet your new partner. And that was my first introduction to either of those guys. I didn't know him prior to that day. And uh, literally, literally put me on the interview set with them. Right then, right then and there, we did hours and hours of interviews. All I had to do was stand there, look me. Remember, I don't speak any English. And uh, we finished up the interviews, and 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 then uh, he said, "Being you know, Dorton Arena, Raleigh tomorrow night, you're going to wrestle on television, having never been in a ring, having no professional training, no training camps, and no amateur background." And, uh, of course, Ivan and Don Canoto immediately just you know, took me under their wing and and uh, and really just, uh, you know, the, had what I call on-the-job training for the next two or three months after that 11-second win my first night in professional wrestling on television. It's crazy. That's pretty awesome as well. Um, yeah, when they brought you on to, uh, you know, your television debut, you know, as Ivan's nephew, um Whose idea was it? Um, was Sergeant Slaughter part of that idea for you to um, be Ivan's nephew? Yeah, the original plan, yes. Don Cronodal, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, had written out a whole, about a, two, a whole two, about a two-year program. Uh, the idea of a nephew for Ivan, figuring the, uh, the Russians would boycott the uh, Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 1984, uh, which they did because the Americans boycotted the Games in Moscow. In 1980, and so uh, and so, you know, kind of what they had planned was, you know, Don was a, 
a Russian sympathizer, an American, but a Russian sympathizer, and eventually uncle and nephew would turn on the American, and then he would call in the Calvary Sergeant Slaughter. He had wrestled with him in the past as private Colonel, so they had they had done some tag team prior, and and then we would wrestle really probably you know, the next couple of years, you know, for the world tag team belts for. Flag versus flag, and chain matches, and cage matches, and 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 just a whole you know couple of years storyline there. So yeah, Sarge was was a, a part of the original concept of, of nephew Nikita. That's pretty good as well. And since you were, you know, playing Russians as well, wasn't that kind of weird, especially during you know the Cold War as well? Um, I mean, you know what? I just I projected myself into the role. And, and uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it was an interesting time because, I mean, they're, they're legit. I mean, there were, there were people who hated us uh, and who for the, for, for the longest time, and actually I still run into people that are kind of blown away. The fact I was just, uh, actually at a church just the other day speaking, and, and the woman's like, hey, uh, man, I, I just, until I heard you speak, you know, coming out of this pastor's lunch in, uh, you know, a while ago, I didn't know you could speak, you know, such good English. I didn't know you weren't from Russia, you know. So so I guess a tribute or a compliment, uh, you know, how well, you know, Ivan and I uh, portrayed the character. But boy, back in those days, yeah, yeah I mean, we, we get crockets, we get death threats at the office, and yeah, there's some serious people out there. <laughs> I bet there was. Did you have any fans waiting for you out in the parking lot? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, the, fa- the fans who, who uh, well, one guy told me, uh, told me uh, he, he just the other day, he's like, he goes, man, he goes, he goes, uh, I did not, I didn't, he goes, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like you. In fact, I, I go, he goes, I, I hated you. I go, no, you loved me. You loved to hate me. He goes, uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's pretty funny as well um you also uh wrestled rick flair in the ring as well and he did make you look good in the ring rick flair can make a broomstick look good uh that was one of the talents uh, one of the, the gifts that rick had it didn't matter who you were how much talent you did or didn't have somehow some way rick was gonna have a good match make you look good even if you didn't have the skills yourself he was still going to have a good he was determined to have a good match and so I feel yeah very fortunate to to have learned uh, a lot of things from Rick and things that uh, I did in the ring that I had not done prior to working with him and it's it's what uh, extended his career so long was his ability to get in the ring with anybody and make him look good. That's pretty good as well. Um, also, let's talk about, um, you also worked pretty good with the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. We did. Tower power to sweet to be sour, if you will. Yeah, um, yeah Dusty and I, man, I, I tell you, I just grew just a, speaking of, just a real, not only a fondness, but just a real love for the guy. Um, you know, we became, uh, you know, uh, had great camaraderie with each other, had a great, I, had, I feel, a great relationship with each other, uh, a tremendous respect for one another. So when we formed the superpowers, you know, had the privilege and the opportunity to, 
really travel on the road with him for about you know two two and a half years, and and just you know really get get, get close to him and, and and Michelle his wife and the family and um, yeah just you know nothing but nothing but good memories uh, you know back to looking back to those days. That's pretty as well. And how'd you take it when you found out the passing when he uh, passed away? Well, I, like many, I mean, uh, you know, of course, a great loss to the wrestling community. And, uh, well, while at the same time, you know, the, the, the inevitable will, will be there for each and every one of us. Um, and, uh, you know, and no, nobody knows, you know, no, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. And, and so, you know, uh, therefore, you know, gotta, gotta, you know, live, live, live today for what it holds and what it gives us. And, uh, I certainly, you know, I certainly still plan for things in in the future, but but at the same time, you know, understanding that that's just inevitable for for all of us. So certainly, you know, certainly saddened by the by the news uh, of his passing, but uh, I choose to really relish and, and focus on on all the fun times and great memories that uh, he and I had uh, traveling together. That's pretty good as well. And you also worked with a lot of great tag teams as well, like the Rock and Roll Express and the Road Warriors. Um, what was it like to uh, work with some of those great tag teams in the ring? Uh, great. Uh, I mean, the Rock and Roll, uh, again, what was what was fun with them is obviously two different styles of wrestling and, um, you know, being smaller guys and quick, quick, quick in the ring and, and so I feel like we had some, some really great matches with them. Road Warriors, totally different style, right? Just strongman style. And, and again, I think we matched up fairly fairly well with them. Uh, and contrasting those two styles, uh, you know, made for uh, made for some, some very interesting, really, I think, some very entertaining matches. That's pretty good as well. Um, you also had a... Uh... Um, some great matches over in Puerto Rico. You had a lot of, uh, you know, feuds with uh, Hercules Ayala. Yeah, yeah poor, I tell you, poor, Puerto Rico is not necessarily, no offense to the Puerto Ricans out there, but as a as, as a Russian, as a bad guy, uh, not, my, not my, my, my favorite place to wrestle. I mean, it, it was... No exaggeration. I mean, they they would escort us in. Like I remember a couple stadiums, they escorted us in with AK forty sevens and put us in a van with no windows and to try to get us in the stadium first of all, and then a cage all the way from the dressing room to the ring and around the ring to keep the fans out of the ring. Um, not to mention kids selling bags of rocks outside, being hit in my arm with a spark plug one time, cutting my arm open from a fan, and uh, so. So, once again, not well liked over there, especially wrestling their heavyweight champion, Hercules Ayala. Uh, I mean, did have some, I built some great matches, but certainly not my favorite place to wrestle. I bet it wasn't. I would have been a little bit nervous, too, especially, you know, playing a Russian. <laughs> yep. Um, and then also another thing I enjoyed about um, another thing in your career, too, uh, you had the Best of Seven series with uh, Magnum T.A., Number one mentioned thing from the fans wherever I travel, wherever I go. Um, in fact, uh, 
in fact, uh, like I'll be up in uh, in New York April 5th, uh, I guess the, the WrestleCon over the WrestleMania weekend, signing autographs, meeting all the great fans up there. And then and at the end of April, uh, uh, the NWA reached out to me, uh, Billy Corgan and, and, and David Lagana, and invited me to, I guess, in a sense, be an ambassador at the Crockett Cup Tag Team Tournament. I'm super thrilled about that, the return of the Crockett Cup. Because, again, Dusty and I won it in 1987. So they asked uh, if I would be, you know, hand the winner the trophy and, and super stoked about that. Magnum will be there at the Crockett Cup. In fact, the night Dusty and I won it, Magnum, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was his first return to the ring side or to the ring, uh, or at least to, to a wrestling event post his, his, uh, unfortunate accident. So that was very, a very emotional evening in, in many ways, but, uh, but yeah, so super, yeah, super, super excited about all of that. Yeah, I'm totally uh, am as well, and I think Billy Corgan's doing a great d- job with NWA. Um, I was at their uh, NWA 70th anniversary show in Nashville last year, and that was a great show. And I remember when he first talked about the Crockett Cup in 2019, and boy, that gave me chills. Yeah, I, I, I think for the especially for the old school fans, and again, as I'm traveling around, you know, I hear you know a lot of the people. You know, talk about the you know that golden era. You know the 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 eighties and early nineties, and and uh, of course, there's a lot of uh, you know like the Crockett Cup tournament, um, Great American Bash, War Games. I mean, there's some things that you know we we did that kind of you know uh, set the precedent for things to come. Uh, and a lot of and a lot of that attributed uh, attributed to. Uh, Dusty's uh, ingenious creativity, and of course, as well. But, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, again, I'm 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 stoked about the about the return and, and what Billy Corgan's doing. I I, I think it's phenomenal uh, his vision for for reestablishing the you know, the old tradition of the NWA. You know, one one heavyweight champion with the ten pounds of gold traveling around, working with the different organizations. You know, the Ring of Honor and, and Impact and the new AEW and and, and other organizations around the world, New Japan, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, I think it's phenomenal what uh, what uh, what they're doing with the NWA. I think so as well, because right now, independent wrestling's on fire as well, in my opinion. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a real groundswell, uh, if you want to say a grassroots movement uh, of uh, the fans out there who... In a sense, I've been longing, you know, for something else, and and no taking nothing away from from the WWE. I mean, they're like the you know Battlestar Galactica up there, and and uh, uh, you know, not that anyone's uh, attempting to dethrone them because you know they're they're not going to. You know, my hats off uh, to, to you know Mr. McMahon and and uh, Triple H and Stephanie and the others who are you know of course running that organization. But at the same time. Uh, I think the people are excited to, you know, have some other options, some other, uh, uh, some other uh, wrestling stars that they can kind of, you know, follow and and, and cheer and and uh, and uh, and be entertained by. I totally agree with you as well. So, um, how come you never signed with uh, WWE or WWF at the time? 
No, I am. If anyone uh, spends any amount of time around me or, or knows anything, or maybe some of you know, the, my latest book is it has my life story, Nikita: A Tale of the Ring and Redemption, and it what I share in there is is uh, uh, the word the word called loyal or and or loyalty. I, in one sense, I'm loyal to a fault uh, sometimes, but you know, I, I just felt like you know Jim Crockett gave me my break. Um, so there was a sense of loyalty there. I mean, you know, could I have tried to leverage that to, to get more money out of him or, or, or and or go to the WWF and, and potentially or most likely make more than I was making with Jim Crockett? I, I mean, probably, yeah. Um, you know, but for the overall part of my career, you know, I was, you know, just very loyal to the NWA and to Jim Crockett for giving me that break. I mean, he didn't have to give me that opportunity, but he did. He took a chance on a guy who had zero experience and 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 pushed me and gave me the, one of the biggest pushes, I guess, uh, you know, that anyone, at, at least up to that time, had ever seen uh, with a guy with no experience, right? And yeah. so um, just felt a real sense of loyalty to him. Therefore, I, I never, they never contacted me. I never really uh, in any way reached out to them uh, and, and, and tried to contact them. Yes, I did a little bit with the AWA, with Vern Gagne, but uh, only because uh, him and Jim Crockett were partnering on some shows. And with Jim, Jim's blessing, you know, I went and did some TV tapings, wrestled Larry Zabisco a few times, you know, for their, their belt and uh, as a way to help support Vern's product, you know. Um, also, you were part of WCW as well. Um, what was some of your uh, great uh, moments over at WCW? Well, in a sense, I mean, you're right. It's just the NWA and WCW are really, in a sense, one and the same uh, for the for the most part, I mean, they just decided, you know, when Ted Turner bought the NWA, bought Crockett Promotions, at one point decided to transition from, you know, the, the NWA uh, to, to just strictly WCW. And and so, you know, it wasn't a whole, I mean, it was, you know, it's the same crew, same guys. I mean, so really wasn't a whole lot of change in, in that respect, in that regard. Um, but, um, uh, so really, it was just kind of you know business as usual, you might say, just under under you know different uh, letterhead, um, and, uh, and yet you know as world championship wrestling, I mean, it opened the door for us to you know go worldwide and and of course all across America and you know and, and other 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 parts of the world and um, so yeah, so I mean it, it's you know for me in a sense it, essentially one and the same. That's pretty good as well. Um, also, um, um, at one time, your uh, wife was very sick. Is that when you decided to uh, quit wrestling? When you found out, it is. Uh, it is. I, I made a decision. Uh, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer at age twenty-four, um, and and she went through a whole series of, of chemotherapy and, and, and radiation anyone's familiar with all of that and it did go into remission for a short period of time uh, and then it really kind of came back with, with a vengeance and it was at that point that I sat down in what they called there in Atlanta the ivory tower uh, 
with, with the with the the hierarchy, the brass of 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 the uh, of WCW. He said, "Guys, I, I'm I, I gotta you know I gotta step away, uh, take care take care of my wife and and kind of nurture her through this." I go, "I just I just I'm not I'm not quitting. I'm not I'm just I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm I'm coming. Back. I will come back. Um, just want to inform you that I do need to." To put her as priority number one right now and take care of her and the end of which I eventually did come back so that's pretty good as well so um, when you were in the ring what did you enjoy doing for fun in the ring no um, when you when you were not in the ring what did you do for fun when you were not uh, wrestling gotcha um, well I mean I uh, I enjoy traveling anyway, um, so certainly, uh, certainly, uh, you know. Although we didn't have, <laughs> if I wasn't in the ring, we're usually traveling somewhere to a ring. Um, <laughs> in those days, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of downtime, but I would intentionally, you know, schedule, you know, two, three, four days off, or usually three, four days off, uh, and actually, I'd go down to Tampa and stay at the animals' uh, parents' house. Uh, just kind of retreat to their uh, hang out at the pool and just relax and you know just enjoy myself uh, for a few days you know and get away from the grind. Um, I don't know how many people realize like in 1986, uh, I mean I had 454 matches in 1986. Um, you know, do the math on that. Well, well, let's see. There's only 365 days in a year. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we we we. When you say the grind, we were on the grind, and so there wasn't a whole lot of downtime. Um, you know, probably the the gym was my my number one release to be able to really to, to you know kind of kind of pull away and, and enjoy myself outside of those scheduled times that I'd I'd uh, get away. Yeah, um, you were also big in the bodybuilding as well, and you also worked out at Jesse Ventura's gym as well. Um, what was that like? And did you? Um, interact with Jesse Ventura. Yeah, that's where we first became friends. In fact, um, that was in my college days. And and that was really probably my closest or real introduction to, you know, to professional wrestling. Again, you know, uh, you flip through the channels. You know, we didn't have 5,000 channels back then. So, you know, you're flipping through the channels. You're bound to see the AWA wrestling on, on television. Um, and so getting to know Jesse at his gym was, was fun. My first introduction to a live match actually was him in a deadlift contest against Paul Ellering before he became the Road Warriors manager. Wow. Yeah, that was interesting because there were 18,000 fans in the St. Paul Civic Center and there was 25 of us muscleheads who were Jesse Ventura fans and 18,000 fans who were Paul Ellering fans. So we weren't well-liked or well-received that night just for the record. I bet you were too. Um, also, you go around uh, preaching the word of God too, as well. Um, when did you uh, give your life to Christ? Uh, great question. Um, it was after I, I left wrestling. It, it was uh, you know I left wrestling officially. Uh, in my last match was in nineteen you know November nineteen ninety two against Big Van Vader. Uh, well, I actually sustained a couple injuries that night, a hernia, which required surgery, and 
and, and then injured my neck as well and, and rehabilitated my neck when I made a decision to go ahead and step down and or walk away really under my own terms. And then, and then about 11 months later, uh, 17 October 1993, I threw some business contacts. I'd met a Christian couple, and they had invited me to church. I didn't grow up in church. Uh, I mean, I grew up around it, or, you know, it's not like I never went. I just didn't grow up in it. Um, and they had invited me, uh, they had invited me to, to, to a church, and, and I went with them. And, and 17 October 1993, uh, I gave my life to Christ, and, and, and it, everything changed. I mean, my whole perspective, my, my thoughts, my, my words, my actions, I mean, everything began to trans, transition and transform um, to where now, uh, in fact, I just last night finished up a, a four-day rally at a, at a biker church. I mean, I'm talking Harley riders. I'm talking, I'm wow. talking tattooed from head to toe. It's a pretty cool church. Uh, in just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, where I had my debut in wrestling, right? Um, and uh, I just finished that up, and, and and so that's essentially full time. What I do is is evangelism and, and going around. Lex Luger and I, uh, the total package. Uh, he and I are launching a men's ministry at the end of April uh, called called Man Camp. Uh, hence the name. Obviously, it's for men. But uh, we're uh, we're launching this new ministry. Anyone interested, any of your listeners interested in learning more about that, just go to mancamp.info, and you can read more uh, and, and see a little bit more about about that. But I'm excited. Lex and I are going to tag team uh, for Jesus and and, uh, and and offer these camps, uh, small groups of, of men gather together and, and really just pour into men, uh, uh, into their lives. So... Yeah, super, super excited about uh, about that, but just the privilege uh, of getting to do what I do now and travel around and, and sharing the good news, sharing the gospel. Hey, that's awesome, man. Um, that's just totally awesome as well. And speaking earlier on the podcast, too, um, you love to go see your fans as well. What were some of your greatest fan uh, your reactions when you go to these different uh, conventions to see your fans? You know, I, I'll just continue to be on record to say uh, a couple things. One, we love our wrestling fan. I mean, genuinely, uh, I hope people hear the sincerity of my heart when I say we love our wrestling fans. And I truly believe, and, you know, having been an athlete, competed in football, and played some in, some baseball and, you know, just other sports, that I just believe the wrestling fan, is the, speaking of loyalty, are the most loyal on the planet. And and so, this is like at this biker church I was at the last few days. I mean, I don't know, 50% of the church, 75% of the church, you know, grew up watching wrestling. Or as they say here in the South, wrestling, you know? <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and so, I, what's great for me now is, is to go out and hear all of their stories, right? I mean, I can tell a lot of stories, but... I like to hear their stories, man. Like some of these guys that this past week, you know, hey, dude, I was at the Dorton Arena. I saw the guy, one guy said, I was in Charlotte at the Coliseum the night you turned, uh, came to Dusty's rescue and and and, and turned from heel to baby face. I, mean, I was there. And a guy said, I was 
at that first Great American Bash watching you wrestle Ric Flair, dude. That was incredible. So that's what I enjoy is hearing all the different stories from the fans. And it's pretty good as well. Um, that's awesome. So where can um, everybody find you on social media to know what you're going to be doing next? Great question. I appreciate that. So so I have a Facebook presence, um, but I don't – I've got somebody kind of is an administrator of that just because of my, my time, because the way I travel and what I do. But I will uh, get – I try to get on Twitter and Instagram every day. I try to post something encouraging – uh, something positive. They can find me. The real one, the real me, is just Nikita Koloff with the number one behind it. The number one. Nikita Koloff with the number one behind it on Instagram and Twitter. If uh, you know, if they want to want to follow along, and, and uh, of course, I have a great time interacting with some of the fans uh, there on 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 the, those social media platforms, and that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And, you know, a lot of people DM me. Uh, whether it's for speaking engagements or just fans wanting to, you know, just encourage me with, you know, how, how I blessed them over the years, you know, with my career or, or, or whatever, you know, and have a conversation. Uh, that's probably the best way to, to, to get a hold of me. Um, that's pretty awesome. And thank you so much for uh, coming out of your busy schedule to come on to my podcast tonight. Hey, I, I'm very appreciative for the invitation uh, you know, thank you, and to, to all the fans out there. You know, if I don't see New York or I don't see at the Crockett Cup, then perhaps you know I'll come into uh, wherever you live. I'll, I'll come into you, uh, your area, whether for an autograph, uh, you know, signing, or if not, autograph signing or a wrestling event. Um, you know, perhaps I'll be speaking at a church in your area and come out and, and see me and meet me there and. You know, get a picture together or shake your hand and uh, you know so I'm just grateful for uh, for all these different opportunities and and hey we'll see we'll see you know where where things go if anything goes beyond the Crockett cup you never know I'll just kind of leave that settle right there for a moment to, to, to keep your eye. stay tuned fans stay tuned and see what the Russian nightmares up let me just say it that way. Hey, I like that. That's a great tease. Now you have my attention. <laughs> uh, that's pretty. All right, good. That's good. pretty awesome. Well, again, that's why I really appreciate the opportunity and the time. And uh, can do it for you again in the future. You be sure to let me know. And to all the fans, to you and all the fans out there, man, God bless you. I hope you guys have a an amazing night and the rest of your week. So, thank you. Yeah, who knows? Maybe you'll show up to uh, Bobby Fulton's promotion in the near future. <laughs> never, never know. You never know. All things are possible with wrestling. Um, that's right and like I said thank you so much and everybody else uh, thank you for listening tonight and you can follow Russell Popcast at Hitting the Marks Podcast Network uh, Podcast City at PodcastCity.net um, Spotify iHeartRadio and you can follow me at WPopcast1 on Twitter and Facebook at Russell Popcast everybody have a great night boom boom Cabana. boom boom Cabana. boom boom Cabana. it's Cabana. Hey, this is professional wrestler Cole Cabana, and one thing I would never do is hit the marks, which is weird, because you're listening to Hitting the Marks.
Good evening, everybody. This is Robin Nelson with another edition of Russell Popcast. You can follow Russell Popcast at Podcast City Network at podcastcity.net. You can listen to my live episodes at Russell Popcast on Spreaker.com, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and you can follow me at Twitter at WPopcast1 and also on Facebook, Russell Popcast. My special guest tonight is Dale Wilkes, who is known as the Patriot. How's it going, Dale? Good, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, I'm glad to, glad to do it. I appreciate the invitation. Hey, the pleasure's mine. So, um, what have you been up to lately outside of the wrestling business? Well, I'm here in Columbia, South Carolina, my hometown, and uh, I still do a lot of things with the wrestling business as far as making appearances and and things like that, and uh, I'm a grandfather of two beautiful granddaughters, and uh, I uh, I spend a lot of time with my granddaughters and uh, just spoiling them and uh, having a good time with them, and uh, you know just spending time with my family and uh, and uh, doing doing wonderful things like that that we get to enjoy as we advance in life and get a little older. That's pretty good. Um, you also came out with a documentary called uh, Behind the Mask. Um, was that hard for you to uh, bring up stories and everything about your life um, doing that documentary? No, uh, not at all. Um, I guess one or something I failed to mention that I do is, is uh, over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, I, uh, I get a lot of opportunity to share my story with business groups, uh, youth groups, uh, football teams, uh, any type of uh, athletic team, uh, at church uh, church events and things like that. So I've literally done it hundreds and hundreds of times. So when I was approached by Michael Elliott from Elbow Docs uh, about putting everything on DVD, uh, it was easy to do. Uh, like I said, I've been very transparent about my life, my career. Uh, and everything I've done, be it good or bad. And uh, so, no, it wasn't difficult at all. I was glad that I had the opportunity to do it. Uh, that way you can get it out to a broader audience, you can get it out to a, a worldwide audience, and uh, we've been able to do that. And we've sold, sold those uh, those documentaries all over the world and uh, had nothing but great response from it. And uh, it's my life from the moment I was born to what I'm doing today. And everything in between. So it was a it was a good experience, and we've had a lot of fun with it. Have a lot of great results from it as well. Um, yeah. Also, before you started your pro wrestling career, you played college football for South Carolina, and then after that, you had a brief NFL stint with the Falcons. Tell us about that. Well, actually, before I uh, I went to the Falcons, I got out of the University of South Carolina in 1984. Uh, I was a consensus All-American there, had a great career at the University of South Carolina. You know, walked away as one of the greatest football players to ever play there. And uh, I say that with, uh, you know, obviously a lot of pride. Growing up here in Columbia, South Carolina, growing up a Gamecock fan, growing up in a Gamecock home. And so it was a thrill for me and dream come true to be able to play there. But I got out in 84 and 85. Uh, I signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then the Buccaneers traded me to the Falcons in 1986. And then prior to the start of the 
regular season in 1986. The Falcons released me, and it was that point that uh, while I had other opportunities to shine with other NFL teams and possibly catch on with other NFL teams, it was at that point that I'd already changed gears and was ready to uh, pursue a career as a professional wrestler. So I, uh, I began my pursuit of a wrestling career in 1986 after the Falcons released me. So, um, growing up, you were a huge Jack Briscoe mark growing up. Uh, was Jack Briscoe like a big influence for you to get into pro wrestling? Well, Jack, along with a lot of other people, uh, Jack was uh, the very first live show that I ever attended in my hometown of Columbia. It was in 1971. And uh, in a historic building here in Columbia called Township Auditorium, and uh, I saw Jack Briscoe and Jerry Briscoe in the main event that night against Rip Hawk and Sweet Hampton, and uh, I, I was, even before I went to that show, I was a big Jack Briscoe fan, and, and it just uh, even intensified that night as a 10-year-old kid when I left that building, but it wasn't long thereafter that I was introduced to Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and Wahoo McDaniel. So all those guys helped influence me and my desire to become a professional wrestler. Uh, you know, all those guys that I grew up watching on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, uh, you know, had a tremendous impact on me and, and uh, put that desire in me to one day become a professional wrestler. Yeah, and when you pursued training, you uh, trained at uh, Fabulous Moolah School, is that correct? Yeah, Moolah is like was like myself. She was a native of Columbia, and she was born and raised here and lived here throughout her career. And um, after the Falcons cut me and released me, uh, I came back to Columbia, and uh, I called Moolah up. She had a school, and uh, it was basically geared toward girls. There had not had really been any guys that had come out of that that had ever had any success. But it was the most convenient thing for me, being here in my hometown. So I went out and met with Moolah and talked with her about, you know, the cost of the school or of the camp and everything that that entailed and everything that would, uh, you know, go along with that. And uh, I set off on my career uh, and my journey to, uh, to achieve success in the world of professional wrestling. Um, so how long did you train before you had your first match? It wasn't long. It was probably just a few months. Um, uh, again, like I said, her school had, had a lot of famous ladies that had come out of there that had gone on and had very, very good careers. But she did have some guys there that, uh, that hung around and helped train me and helped teach me the basics. Uh, back when there were still uh, enhancement guys that were used on TVs, uh, she had several guys that Vince would use for his TV shows and use them as enhancement talent. And um, so when I was going through her school, those guys helped teach me the basics. And, you know, once I got out of there and, and, and looked back on it, they probably didn't know a whole lot more than I did. But they taught me the very, very fundamental basic, how to lock up and how to grab an arm bar and how to grab a headlock and, and things like that. And after probably a couple of months of, of being in the ring and training with these guys, Mula put me on one of her shows. She would run shows around the, the Midlands area of South Carolina 
and um, and throughout other parts of South Carolina, and usually in front of very small crowds at just local National Guard armories or high school gymnasiums and bars and honky tonks here throughout the state. And uh, but it was a chance for me to get in a ring and get in front of a live crowd, be it very small crowd on most occasions, but still it gave me some experience in the ring and you know how to work a crowd and how to perform in front of a crowd. That's pretty good. Well, now let's talk about your time over at uh, Mid South Wrestling and your chemistry and relationship uh, when you got paired with uh, Scott Steiner and you guys became the wrestling machine. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I um, I initially went in as just Del Wilkes, um, and then it was shortly thereafter that Lawler came up with an idea of putting me under a hood, which ended up being sort of a theme throughout my career, um, as the Dreamweaver. Um, and uh, after a few months of that, he then came to me, and, and um, we had some other young up, up-and-coming talent there in Mid-South, Myself, uh, Tracy Smothers, Scott Steiner, uh, Brian Lee, uh, Sid, um, had just left there, uh, and also uh, Mark, the Undertaker. Of course, this was way before his Undertaker days, but we were all there in Mid-South at the same time. And uh, uh, again, Lawler approached us about uh, putting me and, um, and Scott together in a tag team, putting us under white hoods and, and, and white... Um, white tights and calling us the wrestling machines. Now, um, you know, Scott had a very, very good background in wrestling. I didn't know anything about amateur wrestling, so I don't think I fit that wrestling machine persona very well. But, uh, yeah, that's where I got to know Scott, and, and we worked together as a tag team there. So there was a lot of good young talent there at the time. You wrestled with a lot of legends. I mean, especially Mort, uh, later The Undertaker. That had to have been amazing. Yeah, but you know, he was, um, and I can't remember the character that he did at the time during Mid-South. It was like some lunatic that had escaped from the local mental hospital. And, of course, Sid was, uh, I think, Lord Humongous at the time. And, uh, and of course, like I said, Brian Lee and Tracy Smothers and myself. So, uh, you know, and and also, too, I want to take you back. Okay. Um, Once I started training at Moolah School, probably the biggest influence on me in my career um, was she ran a show here in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, she had Wahoo McDaniel on the show, and uh, I met Wahoo that night, and um, I um, just instantly hit it off with Wahoo. I guess it was that football background, that college and NFL background that we both had. And Wahoo really took a liking to me and really, really uh, helped me, um, took me under his wing a little later on down the road. And, and I traveled with Wahoo for probably a couple of years and uh, just learning the business. So, you know, when I go back and look at people that um, influenced my career, that touched my career, that played a major role in my career, that had a major impact in my career, there's probably none that influenced it as much as Wahoo and, uh, you know, and, and just helped me gain knowledge and experience in the business like Wahoo did. Um, also, Wahoo McDaniel is the one who got you uh, hired at AWA. And how did you come up with the Trooper? Well, 
but um, I'd like to take credit for it, but it wasn't my idea. One of the guides that I was telling you about that um, sort of helped train me there at Moolah's, his nine-to-five job was as a deputy sheriff in in one of our our counties here right outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, on her weekend shows, uh, he would work those shows, and he would work as the super enforcer uh, as a deputy sheriff gimmick, just like his real-life job. So when I went to work for Vern the first time up in the AWA through Wahoo getting me booked up there, uh, this guy that I'm talking about that was a deputy sheriff in real life sent me a videotape of some of his matches and some highlights he put together, and he wanted me to give it to Wahoo and Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne and let them take a look at it and see if they thought he had any potential. And uh, they didn't think that he did. They didn't really see that he would probably have much of a future in the, in the wrestling business. But they liked the character and they liked the gimmick. So they came up with the trooper gimmick. That was um, that was a combination of Wahoo, Vernon, and Greg Gagne that came up with that. Yeah, I was wondering how you came up with that. I wasn't quite sure if it was you or, you know, Vernon them that helped you get that gimmick. So that's why I asked you. I was kind of curious on that, how you became the trooper. Yeah, those guys came up with it. So, um, how did you go from the trooper and donning the mask to become the Patriot? Well, I, Jordan uh, uh, was really pushing the heck out of me there in the AWA when I worked for him. And, uh, you know, he, uh, we were on TV Monday through Friday from 4 to 5 o'clock on ESPN. Uh, but the AWA was a struggling company. And uh, they were doing everything they can to just keep a heartbeat and keep a pulse. And uh, they were barely surviving. What was once a great company was now really on life support. But it did give me nationwide and worldwide TV exposure at the Twitter through ESPN. Now, once the AWA closed their doors and went out of business, I really wasn't sure what my next move was going to be. So I came back to Columbia and I started working a bunch of little outlaw shows and independent shows and just booking myself as often as I can and then um, that's when I was approached uh, by the people that were starting the Global Wrestling Federation um, uh, there was a lady that um, out of Atlanta, Georgia that was the owner and uh, Joe Petticino, body Joe Petticino, Bonnie Blackstone and Bill Eady uh, were sort of the brain trust there at Global and uh, they approached me about coming to work for them. So the very first show that Global ever had in Dallas, Texas, uh, was going to be a TV taping at the Sportatorium, the old legendary Sportatorium in Dallas. And so uh, they FedExed me a ticket to go out for the weekend and, and to tape on, Monday, on Friday and Saturday and then fly back home on Sunday. So I took my trooper gear and nobody said anything any different. They just said, we want you in Dallas, Texas. We'll FedEx you a ticket. And uh, so I showed up with my trooper gear. And literally just a few hours before the very first show Global ever ran, before their very first TV taping in the history of the company, uh, those same three people, Bonnie Blackstone, uh, Joe Petticino, and Bill Eady, uh, came to my, or called me over to uh, Joe Petticino's hotel room and presented this uh character to me and uh, as a matter of fact Joe Petitino's wife Bonnie Blackstone had brought 
uh, the gear with her, the red, white, and blue mats, red, white, and blue trunks, the red, white, and blue tights. And they just laid it out to me that afternoon before we were literally just hours away from my first TV taping. And um, the, um, our military, this was 1990 or either 91, I think, and the United States military was involved in a conflict in the Middle East over in the, in, um, uh, we had gone into Kuwait. Uh, Iraq had gone into Kuwait and occupied Kuwait, the Iraqi military. And the first President Bush sent our troops into Kuwait to liberate the country. And obviously, patriotism was at a very high level at that time. And uh, wrestling has always done a good job of taking advantage of situations like that. And so um, we did the exact same thing. And I thought it would be a great time for a patriotic character. They presented it to me. I agreed to do it. The rest is history for me. So when you were doing the Patriot over at GWF, um, that was for a short stint. Didn't it also um, close down as well? It did, but I was gone well before it closed down. Okay. I, um, I had an opportunity to go to work for All Japan Pro Wrestling for Mr. Baba uh, in Japan. And uh, I went to Bill Eady and, and Joe Pettistino. And, and at this time... Um, uh, Eddie Gilbert was involved in the booking process as well. And I went to those guys and told them that I had a tremendous opportunity. Uh, listen, man, it was a, it was considered a feather in your cap in the wrestling business if uh, you got an opportunity to go work for Baba or to go work for Anoki. And uh, Mr. Baba had called for me, and I wanted to go. And, and it was a three-week tour. So I told the guys at Global, I said, listen, I'm going for three weeks, and if something good comes out of it, and if an opportunity comes out of it, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna take advantage of it. So they sent me off with, with their blessings, and they understood. Uh, and uh, literally three nights in to that three week tour, uh, Mr. Baba approached me and offered me a full time job. And uh, there was no way, uh, anyway, no way at all, I was going to turn that down. It was a tremendous opportunity for me. So when you were over at Japan as a Patriot, uh, did everybody love the Patriot character? And what was some of your memorable moments and what you learned over in Japan? Well, it was a very popular character there. Um, it was a unique biz or a unique company that I worked for when I worked for Mr. Baba. And it, you know, I, I think a lot of people may initially think, well, here's a very patriotic character in America now working in Japan and the Japanese crowd might would hate him but uh, they love the character there there really wasn't a ill baby face concept to the way Mr. Baba did business and um, so it was a very popular character there and uh, it was a great company it was um, it was uh, a company that was loaded with legendary talent a company that uh, throughout the time that I worked there during the 90s that had the greatest matches I've ever been a part of, night after night after night. Um, you know, a lot of people think, well, Bill, probably the highlight of your career was working for Vince McMahon and the Bret Hart feud. Well, no, it wasn't. The highlight of my career was working for All Japan and working on a roster that included Stan Hansen, Terry Gordy, Steve Williams, Dr. Death Williams, Andre the Giant, Abdullah the Butcher, uh, Dory Funk, uh, the Can-Am Express with Doug Furness and, and Danny Crawford, uh, the Fantastics with Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, 
uh, my tag team partner, Jackie Fulton. Uh, and then you go to the Japanese side and you got Jumbo Saruda, Mr. Baba, uh, Masawa, Kabashi, Kawadi, Kawada, Kawai. Uh, that was a highlight in my career working for that company. And uh, I loved working over there. The, uh, the work work rate was unbelievable. Uh, you saw, you saw five star matches night after night after night. So, um, it was, it was a pleasure working for Mr. Baba in all Japan. I bet it was. It would be fun. I always wanted to, uh, go over to Japan myself. So, how did you like the culture over there when you were over there wrestling? Oh, I loved it. I loved the culture. It was a fascinating culture. Uh, it was a unique culture. Uh, I really adapted to it very well. Uh, it was just a, a fascinating country. And uh, we worked cities, you know, uh, like Tokyo and Osaka. And, uh, and then you could also go out in the country and, and work an outside show. And uh, so, you know, you, you could work in front of 20,000 people one night, and the next night 3,000 people in a little country town, you know, four hours out of Tokyo. So uh, you just got to see uh, a wide range of things. But again, it was just, uh, it was a great time to work for one of the most successful companies and one of the most successful promoters in the history of the wrestling business. That's pretty good as well. Now, let's talk about your time over in WCW when you were working with Eric Bischoff and you were part of a tag team called Stars and Stripes with Marcus Alexander Bagwell. Um, what was your chemistry like with um, Bagwell, who is now Buff Bagwell? Well, I knew Marcus from the AWA I'm not from the AWA days, but from the global days when he worked as a handsome stranger. So I'd known Marcus long before I ever got to WCW. Uh, I knew Bischoff before I ever got to WCW. When I worked in the AWA, uh, Eric was our was a, you know our TV guy, the guy that did our TV show and was the voice of the AWA. So I knew Eric from up there. Uh, he was now running WCW. Uh, Greg Gagne uh, uh, was also on the booking committee in WCW at that time. So it was a pretty easy move for me, a pretty a pretty good transition into WCW because I knew all those guys in WCW. And I initially went in just as the Patriot and uh, just to work in singles uh, matches as a singles wrestler. But uh, they had a lot of good tag teams in WCW at that time. Uh, the Nasty Boys, Harlem Heat, uh, pretty wonderful with Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. And of course, they uh, they thought that another good tag team would uh, make that even better. So they approached me one night about putting Bagwell and I together and calling the team Stars and Stripes. And uh, I, um, you know, I, I got along good with Marcus. Our chemistry was great, and um, you know, we were tag team champs there twice on, on two different occasions. And uh, I'm still very close to Marcus. That turned into a to a lifelong friendship, and uh, so I enjoyed my time working with Marcus and, and being a part of that tag team and, and spending time with him on the road, and uh, you know, still very close to this day. Do you ever see you and Marcus ever getting back together, like maybe in the ring, doing something in pro wrestling? No, I'll never get back in the ring with anybody. <laughs> I'm fifty-two. I'm almost fifty-seven years old. I've had fifteen orthopedic surgeries three knee replacements, five other knee surgeries, uh, 
about five uh, tricep surgeries. Uh, my right wrist completely fused. A couple of shoulder surgeries. So no, Dale Wilkes will never get back in the ring with anybody. Marcus Bagwell or no, no one. <laughs> <laughs> so when Austin, you were in WCW for uh, a while. Um, did you kind of like feel left out? Um, I've heard stories about how the locker room was like real clickish. Well, it was. It really didn't get that way though until they um, they had the big coup from from uh, WWF, as it was known at the time, and that's when they signed Hogan and they brought in Hogan and they brought in Savage and they brought in Duggan and they brought in Beefcake and Jimmy Hart and. They just brought in a large portion of the WWF roster at the time, and that, that became the focus of everything WCW was doing. Those guys that were there before Hogan and Savage and, and all the other um, you know, uh, followers of Hogan and all the other Hogan disciples and all the other Hogan butt-kissers uh, were brought into WCW. That became the focus of WCW, and those of us that were there before uh, you know, were sort of put on the back burner. So I was uh, sort of saw the handwriting on the wall and became very, very disinterested and just, you know, no longer wanted to be there. And uh, so I went to Bischoff about, uh, I'd signed a three-year contract with him. And I think I was halfway through it or maybe two years into it. And um, uh, I had a chance to go back to Japan. Mr. Baba had contacted me about coming back and, I approached Bischoff about letting me out of my last year. And, uh, you know, with my point being, Eric, I'm going back to work in Japan. Nobody in America will see me on TV here. I'll be in Japan, and only the people in Japan will see me wrestle, will see me on TV. I'll be on the other side of the world. I'll be no competition to you. So I appreciate you letting me out of a contract, and it's obvious you're, you know, your plans for me and the rest of us, you, you really don't have any. Uh, are you not sure what you're wanting to do with it? So I'd like to walk out of here and you let me lose about last year. And Eric would not do it and uh, was dead set against it. So I walked out on him anyway. And uh, I was supposed to be at a pay-per-view. Uh, I forget where I was supposed to be at. I was somewhere in Mississippi on a pay-per-view or a live show one night. And um, I, I, I made Bagwell. I owed it to Marcus to let him know I was done. And I would not be back working for that company while he was at that live show or either at the pay-per-view, whatever it was. But I would be on a flight to Tokyo, Japan. And um, so I just literally walked out on that DCW and walked out on that last year of my contract. So uh, so once you did that, went back to Japan, Bischoff did, um, just let it go and didn't pursue you because you were like under contract? He did. He threatened me with lawsuits. Uh, he threatened Baba with lawsuits. Um, when I uh, got back to Japan, it was a four-week tour. And um, he, Bischoff was calling my house and, you know, threatening my wife at the time. We're no longer married, but, you know, she was threatening her. And I know he's in Japan, and you better give him up, and you better tell me, and I'll do this and that. And so she's calling me up while I'm in Japan, worried and scared to death, and then Baba's showing me letters that he's getting from Bischoff and I said Mr. Bob I said I'll take it to you ignore the guy he'll go away I said I wouldn't respond to anything I'm not going to respond to anything 
I said, if we just ignore him, he'll go away. And, and he did. Just eventually just, you know, quit bothering me. And he quit threatening me. And he quit sending me letters. And I just ignored every bit of it. So you just went on with your career and enjoyed uh, some more of Japan, like you said earlier on the show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's, that's where I loved working the best of any place I ever worked. And I was back, and I was glad to be back. The only downside to working there was just the physicality of our matches. Like I said earlier, there was no heel, no babyface content yeah. to our TV shows or to our matches every match that you saw in an all-Japan ring and on an all-Japan TV show had a clean finish, a one, two, three finish. There was no disqualification. There was no outside interference. There was no count-out, no double count-out, no double DQ. Every match had a clean finish. So that lent itself to a more physical style of wrestling. The action in the ring, not the action on the microphone or the action outside of the ring, or the action with the manager or a valet or anything like that. We used none of that to sell tickets. We sold tickets and sold out over 200 consecutive shows in Tokyo based on in-the-ring action. And it linked it to some of the greatest matches you'll ever see by anybody that's listening that's unaware of all Japan uh, uh, video from the 90s. You can go to YouTube uh, and, and you can look that stuff up. You'll never see better matches. You'll never see higher quality matches than what you'll see. But it was a more physical style, so it lent itself to more injury, being tougher on the body, and then, you know, these injuries uh, were starting to mount up on me at this time, but still, uh, it was where I enjoyed working more than any other place I'd ever worked. So when did you go over and work for Vince at WWF, now it's WWE, Um, when did you become part of that company and working for Vince? In uh, 1997, I uh, I was beginning to have a lot, a lot of health issues as far as staying healthy. I had a couple of surgeries, I had, uh, and needed several surgeries, I had, I blown my tricep out twice. Uh, in an all-Japan ring. I literally blew my knee out uh, in a ring there, and so at this point in time, the only way I can work is with a very a very sturdy, heavy, stiff knee brace on. It gave me the ability or gave me enough support so I could walk and get in the ring and at least hit the ropes. But it was starting to take a toll on my body, and it was starting to affect what I could do in the ring. Um, so I, I sort of saw the handwriting on the wall. I had an opportunity to go to work for Vince, and I felt like while my body still was capable of doing it, they had offered me a three-year deal. I said, I better take advantage of this while I can, because it was very apparent to me, and it was very apparent to my doctors and my orthopedic surgeon that, that I was on borrowed time. My body was literally that, that beat up, that shot, and in that kind of trouble. But I knew I could not continue the physicality of what we had to do in all Japan, and at least in the WWF, that it wasn't quite as tough on you physically. The, the matches didn't require that physical type of match that it did in Japan. So I thought, well, I've got a chance now to go back and maybe work a style that could give me a little bit more time on my career. And so that was the biggest reason I took advantage of that opportunity when Vince came calling. 
So um, once you were over in WWF, um, you had a feud with, uh, like you said earlier, with Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation. What was it like to work with Bret Hart? Well, it was like working with Stan Hansen and uh, any of the legendary Japanese guys I had worked with. Uh, you know, Brett sort of worked that kind of style like we did in all Japan. It was a little more snug, a little stiffer style. And uh, so um, I enjoyed working with Brett. We had a great program together. And uh, it just it just worked out perfectly. But about the time I got to the WWF, uh, Brett had turned heel and was on this big anti-American crusade and, and you know, running down American, bad-mouthing American, putting the boots to America and its people and its wrestling fans. And, you know, about the same time he's doing that, here comes a guy named the Patriot walking into the WWE that was, you know, this baby face waving the American flag and, you know, uh, you know everything about America, red, white, and blue. So it was perfect timing and it felt like a glove. It was just a... Uh, it just worked out perfect for my arrival there in his heel turn. So, um, did Vince um, like the whole Patriot character and uh, like you wearing the mask? I've heard Vince really didn't like wrestlers wearing masks too much. I don't, I, I don't think it was necessarily Vince was against mask wrestlers. He had, it had many throughout, you know, his, his owning the yeah. WWF uh, at that time that was a WWF. But he just felt like at that particular time, with the climate in pro wrestling and the fans sort of being smarter than they were, you know, 15 or 20 years prior, it just felt like maybe it wasn't a good fit. I don't think he had anything against the mass wrestler. He just didn't think it was a good fit. He, think, he didn't think it would get over with the fans. And my argument to Vince was, or my rebuttal to Vince was, well, Vince, I've worked all over the world before I come to you, dude. This isn't my first stop. I've been on the worldwide stage now for over 10 years in all Japan, on, the, uh, on ESPN with the Global Wrestling Federation, on worldwide TV with WCW. And uh, everywhere I've been, I've been one of the top guys in the company. I've been one of the more popular baby faces in the company. And uh, so I don't think it's going to be any different here. Your fans, the WWF fans, They've already seen me. They've seen me working global. They've seen me working WCW. I'm not coming in here as some unknown talent. I'm an established star. I've already, you know, I'm, I'm very well established. I'm known all over the world. This is a popular character. So, I, you know, with all due respect, Vince, I completely disagree with you. I think the character can do very well here. And so he said, okay, we'll see what it does. And it did. I mean, night after night after night. When I first got to the WWF, every night I walked through that curtain, the crowd erupted. And it was um, it was over big time with the wrestling fans. So that's when he saw that, and he realized that as well. And so that's when he decided to put me and Brett together and let us do our thing. Um, you were also around the time when um, it started getting intense in the locker room between uh, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Can you tell us about that? Well, there was just a big dislike. Uh, you know, uh, they were pushing Sean as, you know, Brett had just turned heel and, and uh, you know, he was, there was rumor his contract was coming up. It was going to mature and, and, and end soon. And there was rumor that he walked to WCW. And, and, of course, you know, they're pushing Sean now to become the face of the company. 
And uh, so that just created tension between those two. And there's nothing unusual about that. That's just sort of that's just sort of a natural thing. You've got two guys that are, uh, you know, one of them's been the face of the company, the face of the company for a few years, and, and another one's been a big deal in the company. But now he's sort of becoming the face of the company, so it just creates natural animosity and tension between those two guys. And and they just had different attitudes about them. They carried themselves differently. One was a little more cocky, you know, in his outward approach to things uh, than the other one was. The other one was a little more conservative in the way that he conducted himself and handled himself around the boys. So it was just a natural, natural competition, just a natural thing for those two guys to butt heads. I didn't, I didn't find it unusual that they did that, but it, it was, you know, it was really, really very obvious. And I spent a lot of time with Brett then because we we were working everywhere together. Every night, we were working with each other all across this country. We worked all across Canada with each other or against each other. So I was around Brett more than I was around anybody in the company at the time. And uh, I heard a lot of um, Brett's, um, you know, he unloaded on me a lot about his, or confided in me a lot about his, uh, his dislike for Sean. Not only Sean. But the direction of the company, Brett wasn't happy with the direction of the company. Um, while I was in the WWF, that's when Vince decided we were in TV. I don't remember what town we were in, but it was it was a Monday night. It was a uh, you know raw Monday night, and uh, we always had to be at the building at noon uh, on those days of TV. And back then, our TV show didn't start until nine o'clock at night. It didn't start. At eight, like it does now, it started at nine, and we were on till eleven. We were on two hours live, so we always had to be at the venue at noon. And he called a meeting on this particular uh, Monday, and that's when he announced to the entire staff, to the entire crew, to everybody on that roster, uh, all the road agents, and everybody, that the WWE's getting ready to blow the lines. This was always a black and white business. Yeah, good guy, bad guy, ill baby face and we're fixing to change that guys we're going to start pushing the envelope and we're going to blur these lines of what used to be good it now may be bad and what used to be bad it may be end up being good and we're going to get a little more risque we're going to get a little bit more adult oriented and brett had a problem with that too and brett and i talked about this a lot like i said we were together a lot in in locker rooms and uh so not only did Brett have an issue with Sean at the time, he also had an issue with Vince and the direction the company was taking and the more adult-oriented team that it was taking and showing more flesh on the girls and the language getting, you know, a little rougher and pushing the envelope with that as well. So but none of that sat very well with Brett. So Brett was a little, a little put out with the whole situation at that time, not just Shawn Michaels. Hey, hey, that's good. I didn't even know that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm just like listening to you going, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot going on then. So um, I got another question for you too. Um, if you could change anything about pro wrestling and how fans perceive it, what would you change and why? That's a good question. I... Um I, you know, I, I guess this, and it is what it is, the cat's been let out of the bag, you can't change that now. 
But, I, you know, I think it, again, this is an old-timer that came into the business in a different era. Yeah. different circumstances. But I, I don't think it's always been the best thing to to completely smarten the fan base up. Uh, I realize that, you know, we it's been a long time now that the cat's been out of the bag, that this isn't a shoot contest, it's entertainment. But I think sometimes you can go too far with that, and I think in some cases they, they have, and I think at times that sort of hurt things, but that's just the way the business is now. It's not going to change. But you still get, and I do, uh, it seems like several times a week I still run into people, and no matter where I'm at, that, uh, and these aren't the smart fans, these aren't the educated fans that say this, but I hate this, um, the way they term the business is fake. Uh, you know, it's never been a fake business, it's been a business of entertainment, but it's a very physical business, it's a very tough business on your body. And it's a very demanding business, a very grueling business, and I'm living proof of that. Um, I've literally destroyed my body for that business and struggle today with issues because of the things that I've done to my body for that business. So, uh, you know, and I think a lot of the fans do appreciate the sacrifice that the wrestlers make uh, by putting their body, what they do, they do put it through for that business and to just entertain the fans. Yeah, I got another question for you too. You don't have to answer this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You um also had a a an intense drug addiction as well during your career as well. Correct. I did, and it was again. It was um. It was something that literally, it was a scourge. This addiction on my generation of pro wrestlers. Um. You know, I broke into the business in 1986, and, you know, wrestlers have always had something that helped get them through the long travels and the, the, the hours and hours yeah. on the road and, and just, you know, the loneliness in a hotel room. It's amazing. You can go work in front of 20,000 people, and they're chanting your name, and it's just the place is going crazy, and you're the center of 20,000 people's attention. And you get back to the hotel room, and you're there, and you're by yourself, and your family's back home hundreds and hundreds of miles away, if not thousands of miles away, and your kids are growing up without you, and, you know, it's just a tough life on the road, physically, emotionally, mentally, in so many ways. So wrestlers have always used different ways of coping with that. Yeah. You look, at the, you look at the guys back in the 60s and 50s, 60s, they, you know, alcohol was a big thing. They liked to drink and, and uh, beer and liquor and alcohol was a big part of it. Well, then you start getting into the 70s and alcohol still a part of it. But now steroids become a part of it as well because it's now become a business where big bodies sell and good looking bodies sell. And all of a sudden, too, in the 70s, now cocaine starts playing a part into the business. And then you get into the 80s, and you still got alcohol, and you still got steroids, and you still got cocaine. But all of a sudden now in the 80s, you've got pharmaceuticals that have now been introduced into this deadly combination, this deadly suit here. And now you've got pain pills, Percocet, uh, Vicodin, Percodan, uh, Demerol, 
Also, too, you've got somas and you've got Valium, muscle relaxers. And guess what? Your doctor that's also prescribing you those pain pills and those muscle relaxers is also writing you some Xanax and is writing you some sleeping pills and some Halcyons. So now you've got a deadly combination of alcohol, steroids, cocaine, and prescription medication. And it started just eliminating. I mean eliminating one by one by one so many of the people that I wrestled with. And then it, it affected me. Um, I tell the story. I was on the road in the WWF back in the early 90s. This was before I signed the contract with them. But I'm on the road working dates with them, and I'm in a car with Rick, um, not Rick Rude, but I'm in a car with John North, uh, the barbarian who later worked as a berserker. Yeah. And it's me and him and Kurt Kenny. And uh, we're running up and down the road, and uh, I hurt my elbow. And man, that thing was swollen up like a grapefruit. And it was just hurting me. I couldn't sleep at night. I was having trouble in the ring doing things I, I normally would do just because of the problems this big swollen elbow was causing me. And we're going down the road, and Kurt says, man, that elbow looks nasty. I said, yeah, that hurts like that, too. He said, well, what are you taking for the pain? I said, well, I'm taking some goodie powders, which are a big thing here in this house. It's just crushed up aspirin in a powder form. You wash a couple of them down with a Gatorade, and it sort of a, a works as a little bit of a pain reliever. And he said, a goodie powder? And I said, yeah. He said, you don't have any Percocet or Picadin or anything like that? I didn't even know what that stuff was. Yeah. I said, no. He said, here. And he reached into his little fanny pouch, and he pulled out a bottle of Percocet, and he dumped about six of them out. I was sitting in the back seat. He was in the passenger seat. He came and reached over and dropped six of them in my hand. He said, take, take one or two tonight before you match. He said, let me know what you, how you feel. And dude, it took the pain away. It didn't take the injury away, but it took the pain away. And I could go out and work. And that night I could sleep because the pain was gone. Now, that big fat elbow was still there. And I thought, wow, he's on to something. So when I got back off the road, I went to my doctor. And I got him to drain that elbow, and I said, hey, by the way, doc, one of our buddies gave me a couple of Percocet when I was out on the road. I'm getting ready to go back out for another three weeks. Think you could write me a prescription for some Percocet? Sure, Dale, no problem. Here it is, man. Here's you a couple of refills as well. So those few that Kurt gave me that night, fast forward several years down the road, but in my attempt to overcome injuries and to continue to work with these injuries or to try to prolong a surgery or to try to recover from a surgery, these pain pills become a very important part of my life. And it led to a horrible, horrible addiction as it did so many of the men and women that I work with. A horrible addiction. I bet it was pretty, I bet it was pretty hard. It not only went through the last several years of my career but once I had to retire because of these injuries and that was the reason that I had to retire this addiction carried on for several years after my retirement so it had a horrible negative effect on my life for a number of years now it did the same for so many other guys and girls that I wrestled with and it took their lives I'm fortunate that I'm still here and can talk to you and other people about this addiction that I've been clean now for almost 15 years, but there were a lot of them that 
aren't here to be able to share that same, same kind of story and same kind of success with you or others. Hey, that's a pretty good story, and that's absolutely truth. I mean, um, you know, God bless you. Um, God was watching over you and, you know, like opened your eyes and got you off that addiction. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it had a terrible effect and a devastating effect on my generation of wrestlers. Um, My wife and I, and I've told this story time and time and time again. Uh Uh-huh. But about, but about four years ago, it was a Sunday afternoon that we were sitting around the house, my wife and I, and we had nothing going on. I said, hey, I said, Cassie, I said, I handed her a yellow legal pad and a pen. I said, I'm just going to start giving you names, and I want you to write down every name I can give you. So I started giving her names, and it was the people who I wrestled with. Whether it was at the beginning of my career, the middle of my career, the end of my career, the beginning or end of their career, but our careers crossed paths or we wrestled together at the same time. And I started giving her all these names and she said, what are we doing here? I said, these are the names of men and women I've worked with that are no longer alive. They're dead. And that afternoon, we came up with over 85 names. Now, that list has now grown to over 100 people. Wow. I work with that are no longer on the face of this earth and probably only a handful of them, and I mean a very, very small handful of them, died of things like maybe car accidents or, you know, some cancer. But the overwhelming majority of them died as a result of this problem, horrible drug epidemic that went through pro wrestling during that time. Of that combination I was telling you about, of the pharmaceuticals, mixed with steroids, mixed with cocaine. That is a deadly, deadly cocktail that took the lives of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of my co-workers. I bet. Um, Now, another question I'm going to ask you as well. Um, Do you have a Patriot action figure? Did you ever get any of of the action figures that came out as you? Oh, yeah, a bunch of them. So you probably have a whole big collection, don't you? I do. Uh, I've got a good collection of those, and um, I um, I have sold some over the years, but the ones I have now, uh, I'm holding on to them. Um, that, uh, you know, my children will have one day when I'm gone. My grandchildren will have. So the ones I have now that, uh, you know, those, are, those aren't going anywhere. But, uh, yeah, there were, there were two different um, uh, models uh, of the action figures that they came out with when I was in the WWF, and I've got several of both of them. But yeah, those are those are locked away in storage somewhere, and uh, they're not going anywhere. Those will belong to the Wilkes kids and grandkids. That's pretty awesome too. Do you still have the Patriot mask? I do. I've still got a few of those. Um, um, I um, and those I'm holding on to as well for the same purpose. Uh, you know, to pass on to uh, my children and grandchildren, you know, once uh, once I'm out of here. That's awesome. So where can everybody find you on social media? Well, you can go to uh, Facebook, uh, Dale Wilkes. Um, and then there's also a Dale the Patriot Wilkes Facebook page. And on Twitter at Dale Wilkes, um, D-E-L-W-I-L-K-E-S. 
Um, and also, too, we've got a website. Uh, it's DellThePatriotWilks.com. Uh, and again, it's D-E-L, DellThePatriotWilks.com. And on the website, uh, we sell our T-shirts, our um, um, uh, pictures. Uh, and, of course, you had mentioned earlier the DVD, the documentary. Uh, we sell those off the website as well. And we also sell masks off there. So you can get the DVDs. You can also get football cards when I play football. Uh, you can get wrestling cards. You can get pictures. Uh, you can get masks. You can get T-shirts. You can basically get any type of merchandising. Patriot merchandising you want at DellThePatriotWorks.com. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Um Thank you for sharing with my listeners, and I'll definitely check that as well. Since you already did a documentary, um, also, have you ever thought about um, doing a book as well? I have. Uh, uh, I have um, been approached on by a couple of people about doing a book, and that's something that um, is, is a very strong possibility. Uh, so, uh, you know, we haven't made a decision to do that yet, but I have been approached about it, and it is something that I am considering. Yes. Hey, that'd be pretty cool. I'll definitely pick up a copy, too, just to you know read a little bit more. You probably have so many great stories to share as well than what you uh, had on documentary. Yeah, there's a lot of great stories. I tell you, it's, um, if anybody that's ever made a living in that business and uh, can tell you, it's a, it's a fabulous business. It's a unique business. Uh, it's a fun business, and uh, a lot of great stories that go with it. Stories in the locker room, stories in the hotel, stories in the buildings, stories in the ring, uh, stories out of the ring, stories about nightlife. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it's a lot of great stories, a lot of great memory, a lot of fun time. Oh, that sounds pretty awesome. Another question I'm going to ask you as well, too, is um, have you ever thought about training wrestlers? You know, I, I was approached... Um, years and years ago about doing that but it just wasn't something that really interested me it wasn't something that I had any any desire to do so yeah I was approached about doing it but it just, just wasn't anything that, that appealed to me okay Dale thank you so much for coming on sharing your story and um, being part of my podcast tonight I appreciate it thank you for having me man. I appreciate it um, everybody else thank you for listening to Wrestle Podcast good night